making airplanes, obviously. Well, uh, the ex I guess the the measure of success of the various companies is how well they handle that, how well they, they keep it from getting in the way of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, it was extremely difficult to to deal with the customer when you in the, in the course of, of the life of the aircraft to get these changes in contract requirements. And the uh, the contracts were getting so big, and the airplanes so expensive that uh, they they got this uh, fishbowl. Uh, you were everything you did was out in the open. You couldn't make a move. You were you were defending the thing in Congress. You used to, have to go down and, and argue with with congressmen and with their staffers about a technical problem that the airplane was having. Which they Some probably didn't understand anyway. Yeah, well, that's right. You know, somebody like a dingle in, in uh, Michigan would hear that, uh, well, the F-15's got a problem with the engine compressor cells. Well, it's a development problem. You can expect it. Uh, and yes, it's serious. And yes, you're taking But then you'd have a whole congressional group descending on you. And it was bad enough to be dealing with the Air Force on that. And then the Air Force would bring in uh, assistance from the uh, from NASA, from the NACA, and from the NASA, and you'd have those as well as the Air Force, and trying to solve the problem with congressional <laughs> interference, uh, it, it got it got to be just uh, extremely difficult. I uh, I think when I got out, Marjorie is. It, Finds it hard to understand how you could walk away from a job like that. I found it extremely interesting, except for the last two to three years. And in that time, you were you were spending more time trying to justify what your corporation was doing, what the program was doing to Congress and to other people, uh, rather than getting the airplane designed and built. And uh, the the real sense of accomplishment is in getting an airplane out, finding out what the problems are, solving it, getting it into production, and then uh, turning over a good product. And when you had this much uh, effort that you had to devote to to what I would say are, uh, well, they, they were necessary things, but instead of being able to do the, the job you were really wanting to do, you were down defending it in front of Congress. and. Tiresome. It, it was tiresome. And so I, I found when I, when, I, when, I, when I retired, I uh, I walked out of the office and never went back in. I had no desire to go back there. I haven't uh, at the present time. I read about the problems McDonald has, but those are problems we had too. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, you aren't going to give them any help by by being back there. Is it different now, though? In, in other words, did you have problems in those days? I think it's and, much different and, now. and you just went and handled it and solved it. Now it's, is it blown out of proportion, or or is it, is it the media? It's over, it's it over, it's macro management is what you call it. 
it, there are too many managers in the thing, really. Uh, when you have Congress, the procuring uh, defense outfit, and yourself handling these problems and dealing with them, it's, it's, there's just too much management. And yet, uh, from the government standpoint, uh, politically, they have to. They have to show that they're on top of it. So to be on top of it means getting into it. Well, were they on top of it before? I don't think they ever get on top of it. I mean, uh, asking a congressman and the congressional staffers and so forth to uh, decide whether the airplane is technically feasible and whether that's a problem that can't be, you just can't do it. During the war, was there a worst of times? Was there a, a moment that, or a time when either production wasn't going well or we weren't doing well as a country or can you remember when, when maybe there was a downtime? No, I think uh, I think there was a general feeling among people at that time that we were going to win the war. I don't think anybody stateside that wasn't in the actual front uh, had any doubts about whether they'd win or not. I can certainly see how people that were on the front lines may have had considerable concern as to whether they would eventually win it or not. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. but uh, I don't think there was a period where uh, I had any doubts about it. It was just a question of when and how much effort and how much pain and money and loss of life it was going to take to do it. Uh, and that really it seems a bit naive because uh, in talking later, well, uh, in talking with my brother, for example, it was, you realize how close we came to losing that war. I think the, the, although I was against his policies, I think the determined effort of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Churchill, and others really were the difference, but it, it wasn't an overwhelming uh, defeat. I mean, that could have gone either way. Uh, I think in 19, uh, well, the Battle of Britain, for example, had that been lost, it would have been a, a terrific setback. Uh, I think in the end you might have won, but I think the price we had to pay would have been uh, a lot harder and a lot longer war. And I don't think a lot of people uh, appreciate that fact. And I don't think the people that were stateside and were involved and not in the innermost uh, circles and knowledgeable about what was going on had those kinds of doubts. Over here it was, uh, it was an initial setback. It, Pearl Harbor, and then it was just unbelievable. I think the lowest moments probably came uh, six months after Pearl Harbor when places like Hong Kong and Singapore and, and uh, those Korea. cities fell to the, to the uh, uh, Japanese and, and the Germans initial successes in, in uh, North Africa. Uh, you know, you kept thinking, gosh, 
how many more of these can you stand and, and we'll just never get started and then the attrition the war of attrition in the Atlantic uh, with the thinking of uh, of transports and supply ships uh, but I, I think after that time it was just a question of, let's come on let's get this done and I don't think there was a low spot after that I don't recall any in the best of times I guess it was when I heard my brother was safe. <laughs> he was shot down over uh, uh, Bulgaria, and uh, and for about 26 days had been reported missing, and we finally got word that he had escaped and had made his way back. And that was, uh, as far as I was concerned, one of the big reliefs of it. The other thing was uh, rationing was was a way of life, but it wasn't that hard. We had ration coupons for sugar and gasoline and meat. Uh, coffee, I think, was rationed too. What was St. Louis like uh, I, I found it very interesting. Uh, when we were working on at Darren uh, Laclede, uh, I discovered Garavelli's up at the Bolivar and Dick Riverville. Oh, I probably bumped book. into you if you were ever there on a Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see a little cross-eyed girl with that? <laughs> and uh, I found it a very, very interesting time to be in. It, it, it was hard for me to get acclimated to coming from uh, the Detroit-Toledo area to the heat, but uh, and there were no air conditioning at that time. But. Uh, other than that, I, I enjoyed it very much. Some people. I don't think so, Marjorie. There wasn't there wasn't that much air conditioning around. Some of the big buildings may have had it, but I think individual homes, no. What am I missing? What do you What do you want to talk about, or what do you feel people would want to know about? McDonald at that time. Um, whatever was going on in the plant. Uh, however, oh, we wanted. I wanted you to tell me about the the blood. The Red Cross came out and wanted oh. to <laughs> to have people have a blood drive out at McDonald aircraft. And um, that was very nice of them. And told them yes, but they'd have to do it on the employees' time. And we. Used I can still remember, this is long after the war, we used to, when the blood bank would come, it would always be after work. You'd drop down after work on the way home and mm -hmm. go to it. Mm -hmm. uh, no, he was, he prided himself on being the world's greatest practicing Scotchman, and in a sense he was. Uh, he had a, uh, a terrific knack of screening minutiae and could get something out of it that others would overlook. Uh, and it, it, was, it was tiring to people. I can remember going out on the F-101, had a pitch-up problem. This is after the war. But, uh, a, a general had written in and, and said he was concerned about it. And Mac had gotten a letter from the general. and realized that he, he needed an answer. And so he got all of those people in, involved with it. I was out there as the chief aerodynamicist at the time. Dave Lewis was there. 
John Aldrich was the vice president in charge of the 101. And there were maybe four or five others, and he got us out on a Sunday morning in his office to uh, do this letter. And we started at 9 o'clock. At 12 o'clock, we had not finished the first paragraph. And I could see at least four or five more paragraphs, and I was mentally extrapolating, you know, when it's... But Mac was dotting every... I'm going to drink the full cup, I remember. That was his words. <laughs> and uh, he hammered that out until that letter was just what he wanted and just what the general wanted. And it was well past six o'clock that night when we all got out of there. <laughs> I think it was a lesson to us not to let this happen again. <laughs> Isn't that but he was—he uh, had a. Uh, he had a passion. He could, he could direct his effort to that far better than anybody I I knew. Other men would have gotten tired of that thing and said, "Look, get this letter out and, and get it done." But, so after the war, then, uh, you were, we were talking about this in the very beginning, but the tape wasn't on about the uh, keeping McDonnell Aircraft, and then it became McDonnell Douglas. Well, McDonnell Douglas. Well, when, uh, just prior to the merger with McDonnell, with Douglas, Mac broke the then existing McDonnell Aircraft Company mm -hmm. into three separate companies. And they said, the uh, McDonnell Aircraft, which was mainly concerned with military fighter aircraft. The McDonnell Astronautics Company, which was doing the space work, uh, Mercury and Gemini. And the McDonnell Automation Company. Now we merged, he bought, well, we merged with Douglas and Mack was the surviving company. It became McDonnell Douglas. Douglas had a Douglas Aircraft Company and an Astronautics Company. And we had one Astronautics Company then with operations in, on the West Coast at Douglas and here in St. Louis. And we had the Douglas Aircraft Company, McDonnell Aircraft Company, and the Automation Company. So we ended up then with four companies in the state of I'm sure that the move to split our company into three companies was made in anticipation of merging with Douglas and trying to find a way to get their personnel and ours together. I think, uh, I know Mac had a desire to add a commercial uh, arm to the company because he could see that uh, being too dependent on military contracts and on the military was, was not the way to go and he wanted, he saw in both the automation company and in the astronautics company and now in the Douglas company a chance to get uh, a more commercial and a peacetime base for it. I think the big disappointment was that he was never able to successfully uh, bring the Douglas culture into the McDonald culture. And by that I mean, when he picked St. Louis, it, it certainly must have been in his mind the labor source that he had here. Uh, the work ethic of the people here. 
I can recall when I was out there of, of busloads of people pulling up from, from the uh, country areas down in the Ozark areas where 15 to 30 people would ride in in the morning to go to work and then would all get together and go back and work their farms. Some of them would work the uh, midnight shifts, second and third shift, and go back and work a farm. Uh, if you ask for overtime, you had them fighting to get it. Uh, we could have... Uh, for the war effort or for the money? At that time, just for the money. It was just that those were people who really wanted to work. Uh, in one measure of it you could use was the absenteeism on a Friday <coughs> or a Monday. Uh, those were usually the two higher days. I think if our rate ever got above six-tenths to seven-tenths of one percent, we were concerned. Uh, you could have got almost ten times that amount at Douglas. And the, di the difference was, uh, out there, if you didn't like working at McDonald Douglas, you could go south on the freeway to work for, for uh, Northrop, or go to Lockheed, or go to North America. Uh, and there were so many outside activities, uh, surfing, skiing, sailing, uh, that occupied their time on it, that uh, it was a much more leisurely laid-back uh, operation. And here, companies take on the, the character of the, of the founder, if he's a strong founder, and Mac was. And I think uh, here it was a tight-fisted, uh, profit-oriented, very hard-working ethic, <coughs> and it, it went all the way down to the to the organization. Uh, and I think that, that it was hard to merge that with two companies. If you just looked at the compensation uh, of the two, the Douglas compensations for comparable positions were higher than ours. If you looked at the uh, at the uh, uh, Oh, things like uh, savings plans, insurance things, vacation policies, all of those were much higher out there than they were here. And the, the job of bringing all that together without uh, giving up everything that he had was, was a truly difficult one. And uh, I think his biggest disappointment, if he had one, was that he was not able to bring uh, Douglas into that. No, he couldn't be two places at one time anyway. So no, and you're not uh, out there, it doesn't he had a lot of other things, uh, you know, that were occupying his mind at the time. But do you think the wartime made it that way too? I mean, you, this company looks like it was built during the war years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it probably did. Parts and and uh, Mac was determined to give the government uh, good effort for the dollar they spent. Uh, he was not. He was in it for the long run. He wanted the U.S. government as a as a very very satisfied customer, mm -hmm. and he'd go to any lengths to get it. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. And uh, he, as I say, he, he was very unique. I could, we had this term teammates. You know, he'd get on the he would get on the uh, 
loudspeaker and calling all the team. This is Mac calling all the team. And then he would tell them of some particular development. You know, we got a contract today uh, on the F-15 for a hundred and so on additional aircraft, and this will mean continued employment and so forth. And, uh, but he, uh, he, <laughs> he said at one time he was over looking around, but he wanted to call them comrades. It was a better he said, but the Russians put a bad connotation on that word. <laughs> well, but he felt that way. And these people that I interviewed out there, they felt that. Oh, yeah. I told you, they, she, this woman said, uh, she didn't work there, but mm -hmm. he did. She said, uh, he was around today, and, you know, yeah. he'd be going on, and, um, He had a, he was... Their grandson works there. He does? At there? Mm-hmm. This guy's grandson works out there. Matt? Uh, and he says he's following in my footsteps. Listen. We talk about it all uh -huh. the time, and they come up. So it's, it was their life. Yeah. I'm, I, there's no doubt about it, and, and, uh... Mac could do that, keep that close to the to those people and be part of it, and, and still be aloof. Just, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. That's really amazing. And remain the boss. And remain the boss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I I would like to uh, let's see. I I think that I have questions about you. Oh, <laughs> man, I reckon. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not asking I know, but that's fine. You mean the <coughs> helicopter? Or no. Or the no, the, the DC-10 in Chicago. I don't, uh, no, when we were on the, the plane when, with Mr. Mack. Oh, all that. That was much later? No, that was, yes, it was after the war. That was in May of 1957. But he was your mentor. He told me that on the phone. Well, I didn't know what that term meant until Marjorie brought it up. But he was. He was, he was very close, uh, very helpful. Uh, I had a, uh, an offer uh, at the start of the Carter administration. I was called down to, to Washington and asked if I would be the... Uh, the Secretary of the Air Force for the Carter administration. And uh, it, 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 no doubt about it, it, it was a great honor, but I had serious reservations about it because financially it, was a, it would be a disaster. Uh, you had to give up all the stock you owned in the company. Mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't be hired back until so many years after you were through in the job. Uh, it wasn't exactly the kind of thing I would have enjoyed. I, at that time, as I said, we were right in the middle of designing aircraft, and it was far more fun to do that than it would be to have an administrative job like that. And I had called from Washington because we thought there was something wrong when I was coming down there, that there was something wrong with the F-15 or... I forget that with the F-4, either one of those two. And Mac wanted to know what, you know, what, what had happened. And I, when I talked to him, I said, it isn't anything serious, it's just uh, a personal problem. Uh, Harold Brown wanted me, has offered me the, the post of Secretary of the Air Force. So he said, what have you told him? I said, I, said, 
I have to have time to think about it. I'm coming home tonight. So I went to work, and when I was there, I used to get to work at 7.30 because it was a half hour before the ship would begin, and I found that it was a time when the phone was relatively free, except for the people in Washington who found out you were there a half hour earlier. They were an hour behind us, ahead of us on time. But I had just gotten in at about 7.15, 7.20, when the secretary said, Mr. Mack's car is at the back door, and I think he's coming up. And sure enough, he did, and he came in to talk to me. And uh, he, he talked to me just as, as I think he would have to his own son. He said, this is a very, very great honor. He said, you want to think seriously about it. Mm. And I told him what misgivings I had. And he says, well, those are, those are genuine. He said, but I think you owe a, you know, an explanation to the, uh, to the secretary. But I, uh, later when I was thinking about it, Mac normally didn't arrive until 8.15 or 8.30. Mm -hmm. The traffic broke down. He'd be the last one to leave around 7 or 8 o'clock at night. But to, to go out of his way to, to uh, come talk to you about something like that and to give you the benefit of his advice uh, mm. was very uh, impressive to me. And to come in with that. that it did, yeah, did, you know, did, he said, whatever it is you decide, yeah. uh, I'm, if you want to stay here, that's fine. If you want to go down there, that's fine, too. But to say you've been yeah. offered such an honor. Yeah. And to not really was, I've never been there. <laughs> <laughs> well, being offered it and given it is another thing. <laughs> I think you may have offered it to a lot of people, but uh, at least to have been considered for it, it was very much of a, a signal honor. I don't think so. But yeah. he was uh, uh, a very demanding boss. Uh, I mean, he wouldn't tolerate any kind of inefficiency or, or any dishonesty or any... Uh, what would he do if there was? Oh, he, he'd just come down on you the hardest to be. Uh, Any family? Oh, sure. There's no doubt about it. He'd fire. Mac, uh, as I said, he... His purpose, I think, was to deliver uh, the best quality, the best aircraft to the government uh, and still make a profit on it. Yeah, McDonald Aircraft, after the war, um, continued to, to do what? Well, we, uh, as I said, there was a cutback immediately on, on the FH-1, the first carrier-based jet fighter. Uh, they cut the production on that in half, I think. Uh, maybe even a quarter, but eventually it went back to 60. We were, originally there were 120 supposed to be built, and we actually built 60 of them. Uh, we built the Banshee after that, and we, had a, we built several hundred of those, uh, several series of them, the F2H1, 2, and the F2H3. We designed a new Navy fighter, the F3H, and that was the one that we had the problem with the uh, Westinghouse engine, and we were they were towed down the river on barges from here. That was a very, very uh, black day. For that McDonald's. was the low point. That was not the best of times. That was not the best of times for McDonald. We built the uh, several other experimental aircraft at that time: the XF-88 and the XP, the XP-88 and the XP-85. 
and the XP-88 became the 101, and we then built the Phantom II, the F-4H, and then the uh, F-15, and the F-18, which we uh, jointly did with Northrop, and the 88B, the Harrier, we made a, a second version of that, working with uh, British Aerospace. Now, that was one where persistence paid off. Uh, Mac had, Mac, we first proposed to the uh, to British Aerospace that we would make a proposal to build those for the U.S. Marines here in their first ADA, uh, 120 of them. And the U.S. Congress stepped in and said, they're buying directly from uh, British Aerospace. So then we kept on with it, however, and uh, built, uh, designed a second version of it, which was a distinct improvement on it. We improved the aerodynamics, we improved the uh, avionics in it, put a radar in it, uh, a bigger engine, and uh, eventually sold that to the, to the uh, Marines. Uh, as a replacement to the AV-8A, and it became the AV-8B. So, uh, there were, uh, well, far more aircraft built after the war. I think we built 5,000 Fours, uh, and I, I would think the number is well up, getting close to 2,000 F-15s and probably close to 1,200 or so F-18 at the present time. On your way up to be president, when did you stop designing? Oh, gosh. I guess about the time I became executive vice president. Uh, did you miss it? Oh, Definitely that, but you, you, I, I learned that lesson from Max. Stay very close to it, but but let the people that are, are doing it. Uh, you answered my next question. But <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to know if you Could were able to do it. To do it, what, I, what he had done. Yeah. Tried very hard to do it. As I, I, probably that's why I know how difficult it was for him, because it was for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was. As I say, there were the other one, and, and Marjorie knows this lesson. I keep repeating it to her all the time. Oh. Perfection is the enemy of good. <laughs> one of the things you find is that there's a tendency to make changes uh, after you settle on something. It, it's a real make problem. It better, yeah. It's a real problem on a schedule to get things done in time mm -hmm. with all the different uh, facilities and groups that have an input into the airplane, uh, eventually you've got to get drawings to the shop, instructions to the shop to fabricate them. And if you're delaying and waiting for, for these, if somebody's late, if uh, the aerodynamics people are late with the external line, or the stress people are late with the strength of the materials that have to go in, the size of the, of the skins and so forth, that ties up people farther down the line that have decisions to make based on that you can't procure, procurement can't start the procurement of the skins until they know uh, the thicknesses that 
engineering and stress want for it. And uh, really World War II. <laughs> right. But if you, and, and this will be the last thing I ask you, um, what's happened to America's production today? Why, why are we in the shape that we're in? Well, not, I think, not just aircraft, yeah, just Yeah, I, I have a personal opinion on that. I don't, don't know that it's the correct one. But I have been disturbed by the fact that, that too many people from the financial end and the people that head up companies that, whose products are mainly the products of engineers and manufacturers. Uh, and that isn't to say that finance isn't an important part of it. But when I look at General Motors, uh, I'm trying to think of who that director was doing who is the, the one of the presidents from but I I've seen I think if you look at General Motors right now and look at the top management there are very few people from engineering that are in those positions and yet uh, cars are not that easy to build that engineering is still not a very very large part of it and manufacturing too and I think there been there's been a departure uh, from people that head those corporations are not coming from the ranks of the engineers and the manufacturers and I think that's probably where the problem is uh, it can go the other way too is it too much cost cutting? Uh, too much attention to the bottom line, too much preoccupation with what company you're going to acquire, uh, not enough focusing on, on the product that you're building. Uh, engineers and manufacturing people tend to be much more focused on that than uh, people who come up to the finance end of it. Uh, and I, I think a lot, I can't say all of it, and it's only a personal opinion, but I think a large measure of the difficulties we've gotten into have been not enough focusing on what goes into making that product. I mean, even marketing people are, are hitting up the parts of GM. You know. Just because somebody can sell something, doesn't mean that he can make it. Uh, and uh, it, it's, you see that everywhere. If somebody becomes an expert in one field, it's automatically assumed that he's good in all of them. And it yeah, isn't true. Yeah. And I think they've just gotten too far away from the, from the product that they're building. And, and I think it showed in the General Motors car. If you compare them to, to what was coming out of Japan, uh, they, they, just, they just didn't compare. They didn't have the engineering in them. Uh, but they're getting better now. Well, they are now. It's a lesson they've learned. But I don't know that they've, that they've uh, 
solve that problem. There's an awful lot of shifting going on right now in General Motors is, uh, uh, in the top management area. There's just another one announced by Stemple. But see, Mac was an engineer. So he, he knew it from the bottom up. Right. And, and, he, and so knew he, how, he knew how airplanes were built. Mm -hmm. He designed them. He designed his own. He, he flew uh, in that interim between the time he went to work for Henry Ford and, and eventually back with Glen L. Martin. Uh, he designed and built an airplane for, to fly in the Guggenheim safety competition. That's uh, the doodlebug, I think it's called. Uh, New York pilot? No. And the name of the plane. Yeah, the name of the plane was the doodlebug. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But she asked if I was a pilot. No. Oh, oh. And Mac had built airplanes. He knew what they were constructed of. He knew what the problems were. He knew how they flew. The pilot. And yet, on top of that, he was a tremendous entrepreneur, a great uh, financial man. So he had it all. So he had it all. And uh, I, I, that's a combination you don't find much of. But when you look through the successful aeronautical companies, uh, Donald Douglas was a lot like that. I don't think he was the financial genius that Matt was, but he was certainly a great uh, he had built airplanes, he knew how to build them, uh, he knew what the customers wanted. He was not an ordinary man. <laughs> no, he was not an ordinary man. No. Either, you know. Well, Mr. And it's, uh, his mother taught him to be frugal. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? I don't know. <laughs> but I, I just thought that Marjorie's got to get the woman's input. <laughs> but I, uh, I, I really think that's the problem is that the people that are heading up the corporation are not those that are intimately familiar with the product that's being built. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, uh, I'm not saying you can't do it. I think it's more difficult and it's easier to get into trouble uh, if you don't have that appreciation of how those things are built. Uh, Right, well, I just wanted your input, and I thank you very much, Mr. Graham and Mrs. Graham, oh, for talking to me today. Thank you.